trend of the last few months has been a concerted campaign on the part of journalists and uh, civil society to make facial recognition just as toxic as it possibly can be. So like there's been a freak out about um, facial recognition on departing flights for international travelers. And uh, you're traveling on a passport and you're known who you are, uh, face recognition is not a civil liberties issue in that case. Welcome to episode 271 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and uh, the views we express here do not represent the views of our families, our spouses, our clients, our firms, our institutions, or frankly, us three weeks from now. Uh, today, we're going to be interviewing uh, Glenn Reynolds, the Instapundit, and also Beauchamp Brogan. Uh, distinguished professor of law at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and author of a new book called The Social Media Upheaval. It should be fun, uh, and we'll get uh, longevity advice from him as well. Uh, I'm joined for the news roundup uh, by Maury Shank, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, uh, by Matthew Hyman, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, now with the National Security Institute, and by Nick Weaver, uh, a, a senior researcher uh, and uh, lecturer at UC Berkeley. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, hosting today's program. Uh, uh, why don't we jump right in with some law talk? Um, the Third Circuit has found that Amazon can be held liable, uh, strictly liable, uh, for damage caused by a good that uh, uh, is sold on Amazon by somebody who otherwise is completely unrelated to Amazon. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, uh, what do you think of the case? Uh, I think it's a classic case of what so often happens uh, with judges when it comes to tort law, and that is they make a policy decision, not a law decision, and they shift around responsibility based on that. that, that, that and that's like been classic tort law since the 60s and, you know, the justices of the California Supreme Court who basically said, well, where should this loss fall and how can we uh, uh, best spread the cost? Yes. And that's exactly uh, what the court here did. And in fact, it may even go before the 60s store when you think about what the courts started doing to the railroads at a certain point. They said, oh, you're the big, yeah, you can handle you're, it. you're the big tycoon. You've got the deep pocket. You can cover this. And I think that's kind of what was behind the court's reasoning um, especially when you look at the opinion where... The very granular explanation of all the things that Amazon uh -huh. does. And you basically just show up with, this was a dog leash, the retractable dog leash that hit the woman in the eye and blinded yeah. her. Uh, and the uh, guys who manufactured it and offered it for sale had disappeared by the, the time. Furry the furry gang. The furry gang, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's funny because the court cites, uh, you know, the, the preeminent case in, under PA law, which talks about who is a seller, and it's this case called Musser, and it's got a four-part test. And what's interesting is in that case, um, it was a, a dispute between someone that bought, I think, a piece of farm equipment at an auction, and they tried to sue the auctioneer, saying... Um, right, you know, and, and, and the court here said, well, duh, you bought it from somebody. The auctioneer just brought the two of you together, in right. a, uh, and it was obvious who was selling it, and the auctioneer had no obvious ability to determine whether the tractor was uh, fit for a purpose or not. Exactly, and, and so um, you, know, you read that, and you think, well, gee, Amazon kind of sounds like a broker, kind of sounds like a, a middleman between the furry gang and this poor woman that was injured. Uh, and the court says, oh, no, 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 it's completely different here because Amazon controls the communications between the product manufacturer or product seller and the end user. And they go through all these contortions, but basically when you read it, what you get to is, oh, Amazon's really big and powerful, and the court thinks Amazon should just uh, hold the bag for this. That's, that's certainly uh, uh, how I read it, too. Uh, what I thought was really interesting is the Section 230 analysis mm -hmm. in this case, uh, where the court says, uh, you know, maybe Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act actually does um, provide an immunity for certain kinds of torts that sound like 
garden variety, strict liability consumer products torts. Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, the court sort of says on those claims, uh, the the plaintiff, she had these arguments about uh, Amazon had a duty to disclose certain warnings and safety things on the website and the quality of the disclosure should have been greater. And the court said, you know, on those counts, you're out. Uh, CDA the, blocks It was those. the furry gang's the fur- uh, responsibility to provide you with a warning, and, and the fact that they didn't do it yeah. does not, not make Amazon liable. Yeah, which again makes the line drawing between what the CDA blocked and what the court allowed to go against Amazon really hard to follow because uh, yeah. because somehow it's okay for the CDA to block whatever postings Amazon should have had on the website, but Amazon's other control of communications made it liable. And so, again, I think the court sort of split the baby. And Yeah, although I, I have to say, I think this applying the CDA to say you're uh, going to be immunized from tort liability for failing to warn about uh, problems with the mer- merchandise that are being, purpose, uh, being purchased is a big subsidy to yeah. Silicon Valley. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, everyone that's got a marketplace, which is how most of these things are structured. You know, we spoke maybe a month or two ago about the Supreme Court case involving Apple Mm -hmm. and the antitrust liability over its iTunes store uh, or app store, I should say. And and so, yeah, I think courts are going all over the map to try and tag um, uh, these big Silicon Valley giants with responsibility. I just think they're doing it in a really inartful and zigzag way. Yeah. All right. the uh, sort of trend of the last few months has been a concerted campaign on the part of journalists and uh, civil society to make facial recognition just as toxic as it possibly can be. Uh, uh, And today was probably the apotheosis of that uh, when uh, uh, they discovered that uh, facial recognition was being used by gasp ice presumably to find uh, illegal immigrants, uh, uh, and they were getting their data from um, the DMVs that have perfectly good pictures of us all, uh, at least those that are willing to cooperate, which is about half of them. Uh, And uh, the kind of continuing stories along these lines, uh, Nick, Maury, you guys have followed this pretty closely. What's your sense about... um, how seriously we should take these stories. I think we should, but it takes some nuance. So what it really comes down to is I think there needs to be the notion of relative relevant expectation of pseudonymity. That is, unless you are um, a rectal cranial inversion case um, and acting out, people shouldn't know who you are. So if you're in a crowd or the like, that's fine. But if it's in a situation where people should know who you are, then it's another story. So like there's been a freak out about um, facial recognition on departing flights for international travelers. And uh, you're traveling on a passport and you're known who you are, uh, face recognition is not a civil liberties issue in that case. No, it's a, it's a convenience issue because the, the, the only th- difference it makes is that uh, you don't have to produce your passport for the fourth time going through the uh, airport. Yeah. And so, what- so I was going to say that Nick's response illustrates the problem, though. You know, when we have these new technologies, we end up having these debates that happen with wiretapping. It happened with access to electronic data. Those kind of granular decisions, somebody's going to have to lay down the rules on when you can do what. Yes. And I'd like to do a modest proposal that it should be a twofold test. The situations one is data check versus retention. So let's take, for example, the uh, piece in The Guardian about the um, London experiment. Well, in that case, they were checking but not retaining against a hot list. This seems quite reasonable, except for the false positive rate seemed um, a bit high. It seemed to have about a 50% high false positive rate. Um, I, th- I think they stopped about 22 people, or at least they, yeah, they, they stopped 22 people, and eight of them were the people they were looking for or were wanted for some reason. Right. 
And that seems a bit too high of a false positive rate to be useful in practice, but the basic idea seems very sound. But then we have stories about the notion of shopping malls using this to identify people, track them, and associate their movements. And if I was an evil Silicon Valley type, this would actually be my startup. And this is deeply disturbing because this is a private entity in places where you do have a reasonable expectation of pseudonymity and the data is being retained rather than just checked. And so we do need to think a lot more about how these tools are used because otherwise we end up in one of two states. State one is we don't have useful tools or state two, we're in a dystopian nightmare where everybody's movements is recorded in a central database. So I, I'm going I'm to push you. Optimal. I'm going to push you on the shopping center because that is synonymous uh, by and large, at least as as described today. Uh, their principal concern is to be able to say, to follow a shopper in uh, consistently to say this shopper went down aisle one and then aisle four and then they stopped at the uh, end cap by uh, on aisle five and then they uh, went quickly to grocery to uh, uh, vegetables picked up a bunch of vegetables and left uh, and that and tells then them I something. And I tie it into the credit card when it's swiped and now I know their identity for the next time they go in the store. Yeah, it, and it, that's yes. the next step that, that goes into the situation. You're right. That it, they, they're, they're, there's no guarantee it'll stop there. Uh, absolutely. And Although the stakes general, are the stakes are lower than being stopped on the street by the police. You know, and these things, you know, people often complain about harassment. This can be a, a tool of harassment. I, you know, the police will say, "Well, it's gotten it right. This is somebody we were looking for." Maybe. I, I'm with you, Stuart. The stop, shopping center seems like a lower stakes situation to me if you tell people that they're being tracked and so, let them make the decision. So let me ask this question for Nick. Uh, Nick, um, facial recognition has gotten a whole lot better, a whole lot faster, which is why the toxification campaign is on, because it actually is starting to, uh, to be plausible as a tool. Um, it's only going to get better if we continue to use it and test it and to discard and correct uh, um, uh, errors that it makes. Uh, and presumably, if we're going to use it, we want it not to be making errors. So why shouldn't we continue to use it in order to make it better as opposed to saying, well, it's no good now, so we're not going to let you uh, make it better? Well, there's actually an interesting question of can it actually get better? So there is a recent test done by NIST, which is really concerned with accuracy of this stuff. And so there were two tests. Um, they were on mug shots. So actually pretty good quality for facial recognition. One was male versus female. One was white versus black. And for both of those, the accuracy for the women and the accuracy for the black males versus white males was vastly lower across the board, across a gazillion different implementations. And they don't even know why that is. And so when we're dealing with stuff where we have this real black box, mis lack of understanding of what's going on at all, there actually is a question of can it actually even get better than what it is? Well, so it can certainly uh, do better uh, in certain circumstances, right? The, one of the reasons why using it when people are boarding planes has a, is likely to work is you have a very limited number of people. You have like 300 people and 300 names, 300 pictures, and you're trying to match a face to one of those 300. That's much more plausible than trying to, to match faces to thousands of criminal suspects or uh, mugshots. Yes. It, it's going to get better in every situation. We, you know, we've been through this with images. Image detection has uh, huge improvements with tweaking of deep learning algorithms. And then people said, well, that's harder, you know, for language. And now language, people are coming up with algorithms where it's much better than human capability on recognizing and translating language. And I feel deeply involved in this industry to a moral certainty that face recognition will get much better. Give it just a couple of years. Yeah, uh, you know, in, 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 the, uh, in the intersectional universe, 
Chinese people are people of color and therefore specially protected, uh, but the Chinese seem to be making facial recognition work in China on Chinese faces. So it's uh, it's it's not clearly uh, um, inoperative uh, if your skin is darker than uh, Scandinavians usually have. And it's also not clear how much China is cheating. So <laughs> yeah, a really enough. good <laughs> cheat on face recognition is you look at the cell phone first. All right. Uh, well, we're going to get the, this. This will be a continuing uh, uh, theme of the show, I'm sure. Uh, but let's turn to what the Chinese are cheating on uh, uh, now. They are dumping um, uh, malware, uh, frankly, uh, uh, onto uh, uh, the cell phones of people who are crossing the border into Western China, uh, including uh, tourists, not just uh, 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 people who seem to be returning Muslims. Uh, um, uh, Matthew, what's uh, uh, what are they actually doing with this malware? Uh, so they are then capturing all your text messages, all your presumably all your email and prob- and all your calendar entries, all of your call logs. In addition, they've got basically a sniffer feature in the malware that's also looking for anything that you might have on your phone that relates to Islamic texts, anything that hints at extremism, as well as, according to the, the Vice story, uh, a Japanese heavy metal band that uh, has a song with some commentary about Hong Kong and China. Well, Japanese heavy metal, you know, you can understand that. Uh, uh, Nick, uh, um, is is this really different from what Celebrite does? With Celebrite, you plug the phone in uh, to a a board and it it, it searches for what you tell it to search for. Uh, uh, In this case, it looks as though they install something that does the searching. But it's not clear that the malware is going to stick around and keep uh, reporting on you. You can delete it uh, once they hand you back your phone, can't you? Potentially, but how do you know for sure? (laughs) So um, the, the general rule is you hand your device to an adversary, it's not your device anymore. Fair enough. Yeah, and I think this is also, um, this really speaks to a security practice that most large organizations adopted probably 10 years ago, whether you're talking about the corporate world or the government, which is if you're traveling to China, essentially the instruction was take a burner phone, take a burner laptop. And this is exactly why you get that guidance from your security officers of your organization. Yeah. So it it isn't clear that they are installing something that will continue to report back, but there's nothing stopping them other than their sense of uh, restraint. And the other interesting thing is that by doing this as malcode, it ends up being cheaper and faster because you're able to do it on all devices at the same time rather than connect to a limited number of forensics readers, which is apparently what they're doing for iPhones. Ah, so um, that's a, they, they can't they can't sideload it on the iPhone. They're, they have to right. download it. It's only an Android piece of code right now. Okay. The search is in the code so that you actually end up knowing what they're searching for. So but, that, that, that's um, got to be a bug, right not a feature, right? Quit. Isn't that a bug, well, not a feature for the for the Chinese? Uh, uh, wouldn't they yeah. have been happier if we didn't know what they were looking for? Yes, but this also brings up a interesting contrast between the iPhone and the Android security model. With the Android phone, you can um, sideload applications, which makes it much more vulnerable to malcode in the hands of an adversary. So if, for example, you're a you worry about your spouse, you should have an iPhone, not an Android, because you don't want your spouse to trojan your phone. But if you want to analyze a phone that you think has already been sabotaged, that same sideloading thing actually makes things easier to analyze, not harder. Um, so it's a very interesting security trade-off between the two, two classes of devices. All right. Um... Speaking of trade-offs, I, the the UK has proposed uh, a remarkable new regulatory proposal that would say social media has a duty of care to prevent certain kinds of 
content from reaching its users. At least that's how I understand it. Maury, this is this is a uh, something that has gotten the lobbying attention of big Silicon Valley. Uh, are they right to be worried? Yeah, I think they're right to be worried. I, mean, I think this is kind of the thin end of the wedge for internet monitoring. The duty of care idea came from a, a UK think tank uh, in a blog by a guy from a UK think tank. I'm forgetting his name at the moment and was picked up in this um, proposal by the government, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport in the Home Office in a consultation released in April. And that's just closed. And a lot of people are taking an interest in this because it could be an obligation to take down um, all kinds of Internet content, terrorist supporting um, online, you know, child pornography and some others. Uh, and to have technical mechanisms for doing that, which is really contrary to the current um, regulatory framework under the e-commerce directive, so which allows yeah, yeah, go ahead. The uh, e-commerce framework kind of um, instantiates the magaziner consensus, which is gone anyway. Uh, and as a practical matter, most uh, of the Silicon Valley companies are aggressively policing content. They have thousands of content police already. So is the objection that they aren't sure that they're doing a great job and that having an actual obligation here means that they'll be held liable a lot more? Uh, or is it something else? I think it's a combination of that plus the idea that you know the, the existing policing is already catching a lot of legitimate speech and you see controversies on that well, and fair. the point is if there's a legal obligation then they're going to have to be more careful and it's going to have a chilling effect on speech all right uh, that's i i am really um uh comforted to know that silicon valley is standing up for my free speech rights uh that the, this that'll be a first uh, uh all right but you know controlling content on social media uh, isn't just about politics. Uh, Nick, the, uh, there, there was a story recently about how Facebook and YouTube have all these guys who are making boatloads of money selling dubious cancer cures to people. Uh, uh, and uh, the question of what, if anything, Facebook and YouTube can do about this. Well, this is just yet another example of the fundamental problem that Silicon Valley faces trying to do content moderation and understanding that you don't do content moderation and understanding you get the quacks and you get genocides and technically I don't think Facebook likes being a party to a genocide but hey um, and so whenever you have a case like this so in this case it's cancer um, where one side or one group has a huge organizational motive and opportunity to manipulate the system, you get these manipulations unless you have intelligence and human intelligence in the loop. And this is just the latest du jour we're going to see a few weeks now, something else. It's been locksmiths in the past. So let me ask about this. I mean, the one of the uh, poster children for uh, abusive cancer cure uh, BS uh, uh, that has made you know millions uh, uh, on uh, Facebook and YouTube is a guy who uh, um, was prosecuted for. Uh, uh, practicing medicine without a license and sent to jail and when he went uh, when he got out he started doing it again but it does raise the question was you know why are we uh, beating up Facebook and YouTube over this kind of thing when the guy who did it is easily reachable and can be prosecuted maybe we would be better off not asking um, uh, Facebook to create a science court uh, about cancer cures and instead uh, take these guys to a real court well it depends in this case yes but what about things like the anti-vaccination lunatics who don't seem to understand what herd immunity is they are not committing any crime, unlike some of these quacks. Um, and, and so, it's hard. What are you going to do? Yeah, I, I look. I, I, I don't say it's easy, but I think that our decision to go down the road of saying uh, 
from saying it's never the platform's fault to, to essentially saying it's always the platform's fault probably is not going to take us to a better place than we were in before. Agreed. Okay. Um, quick update on the, uh, the U.S.-China trade war. Um, my, my assessment of this, Maury, is that basically um, what happened in the G20 is the president uh, uh, met with Xi as usual. They, they, they were bosom buddies, had a, a great experience. Uh, I, it, Trump decided not to expand the war, uh, made some ambiguous statements about how they were going to treat Huawei. Uh, uh, President Xi uh, may have made some promises about buying more stuff from the United States. Uh, um, and uh, uh, no one back in Washington actually knows what the president uh, has decided about Huawei, and uh, you can see the Commerce Department struggling to figure out uh, uh, how it's going to implement the new climate uh, a, under the existing um, sanctions that have been imposed. Uh, we're only going to find that out if we continue to watch. Uh, um, and in the meantime, um, Microsoft and HP and Dell, like everybody else, is saying we're moving 30% of our capacity for building our uh, uh, high-tech technology uh, out of China to other places. 30% seems to be the standard uh, um, uh, hedging percentage. Uh, is, is it as kind of confused as that? Yeah, it, it seems pretty confused. And I mean, part of it is the president's usual uncertain messaging. Part of it is that this is a very big and unusual game that's being played. Um, and, you know, I, I just I, I think a lot of people have been wrong footed by the big and quick changes. I do. I do have the observation that it's hurting U.S. companies overall, the uncertainty. I mean, there is the news that um, manufacturers are moving out of China, which seems to hurt China. But the U.S. being viewed as an unreliable trading partner is having some pretty negative effects. And U.S. companies are complaining about that. And I think that's what the president was trying to address at the G20. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. The U.S. companies are, of course, very nervous about that and, and probably should be. You know, my guess is that they were going to be branded unreliable trading partners whenever it was convenient for Beijing anyway. Uh, and uh, anything in the high tech sector uh, is almost by definition uh, something that uh, China wants autarky on. So I, I suspect that uh, uh, you're treating the, uh, the symptoms, not the disease, when you try to uh, uh, avoid being um, labeled an unreliable supplier of technology to Chinese companies. But I and I have to say, I, I think while the president is, as usual, a little low on fine motor skills on policymaking, uh, um, this ambiguity with people continuing to hedge their bets by moving um, their supply chain partially outside of China probably does put long run continuing pressure on China in a way that uh, uh, nothing else has. I don't disagree with any of that. I, I think this, the broader dispute is one that could go on for quite some time. I, I don't expect an immediate resolution uh, of the broader U.S.-China t uh, trade tensions. All right. Well, I, I'm going to try to uh, wrap it up here. Uh, one story that I did want to uh, uh, note uh, is that Perceptix, the uh, um, uh, license plate and uh, 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 camera company that uh, had a breach uh, of CBP data uh, from one of uh, lane one lane of traffic uh, that uh, created a big problem for CBP. Uh, uh, has actually started down the process of being debarred. It's a very striking penalty uh, and makes me wonder whether the problem is not just that they had poor cybersecurity, but that they covered it up in the view of CBP or were not forthcoming about the fact that they'd been uh, compromised by Boris the bullet dodger. Uh, um, uh, but uh, if, you, if you believe there should be consequences for uh, 
government contractors who have bad security, boy, this is going to turn out to be an uh, essential case to study for the future. And boy, Boris is going to have a lot easier time on his extortion in the future. Absolutely. Pay him first immediately and then report, uh, uh, because after that, uh, uh, every day you delay reporting is a day that you could be determined not to be a reliable supplier, and in the end, you could be debarred for it. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm going to turn now uh, to our interview guest, uh, uh, who is Glenn Reynolds. He's the Instapundit. He's the Beauchamp Brogan Distinguished Professor of Law at UT Knoxville. Uh, he is the uh, guiding spirit behind uh, Instapundit.com, uh, uh, and he's the author of a new book, The Social Media Upheaval. So, Glenn, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the uh, program, uh, and I really enjoyed your uh, your book. Uh, I, let's start uh, with the uh, elevator pitch version of the, the book. What what what's your thesis here? Well, I, it's probably best to start with just sort of how I came to it, uh, which was kind of by accident. Uh, the way I get all my ideas, I was. At- actually reading a book that had nothing to do with social media, uh, although it's a pretty good book. It's by James Scott for me. It's called Against the Grain, and it's about the very earliest uh, cities. And the interesting thing about the very earliest cities was that they sort of sprang up and, and often got pretty big with thousands or tens of thousands of people in them. And uh, then uh, they would depopulate because some epidemic would spread all over and uh, everybody would either die or flee to the countryside to escape it uh, because, in fact, Humans had literally no experience with cramming thousands of people and their animals all together with no knowledge of sanitation. Uh, And there was an observation Scott made. He said, the pioneers who created this historically novel ecology could not possibly have known the disease vectors they were inadvertently unleashing. And then right as I was reading that, I also happened to see a, uh, a tweet by Richard Fernandez on Twitter where he said, the Internet is rewiring brains and social relations. Could it be producing a civilizational nervous breakdown? And I was thinking, well, you know, it does seem like society's getting crazier. Maybe maybe it actually is getting crazier. Uh, there's a whole school of information theory called memetics, uh, which is about memes, and I don't mean pictures of cats with funny phrases on them, but about what are essentially viruses of the mind, self-perpetuating ideas that reproduce in people's brains and are spread otherwise. Uh, And really the effect of social media in part, uh, especially because social media sort of big monocultures, uh, near monopolies or whatever particular flavor of social media they are, is created a space where ideas can spread with unprecedented rapidity and lack of uh, thought in the process. And and that's exactly what happens. And so I was like, maybe the social media, maybe Facebook or especially Twitter are kind of like one of those early cities where we're cramming all these uh, disease vectors together that we don't even really know about or understand uh, and experiencing the consequences. And and so that's sort of where I I, I started from. Yeah. And clearly, I mean, Twitter mobbing is a a great example of rapid – a spread of a uh, uh, harsh uh, justice, if you believe it's justice, uh, but harsh treatment uh, uh, that you just would not have seen uh, uh, before uh, uh, it became possible to quickly like or um, pass on uh, uh, advice or a a condemnation of a particular individual. Uh, uh, And uh, that, at least, is relatively new, although maybe not so new, right? The, 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 before social media, there were blogs, and the blogs uh, uh, notoriously gave us the verb to fisk someone with, because <laughs> people uh, analyzed the uh, uh, news articles of one Robert Fisk, a uh, lefty journalist uh, for, I think, The Guardian, uh, uh, who held himself out as the great... Uh, expert of the Middle East, and uh, it always turned out that the Middle East, uh, uh, that what was being done in the Middle East was evil if it was done by the United States. Uh, I, and a lot of people started taking apart his stories and demonstrating how uh, many flaws there were. I, and that was, while it was not quite the same as a Twitter mobbing, it uh, must have felt the same to him. 
Oh, well, I don't know. He showed no signs of embarrassment. Um, but I would say it's actually the opposite of a Twitter bombing because one of the things you see, and, and there's research to bear this out, which I talk about in my book, is the vast majority of people who retweet something or comment on it and share it on Twitter uh, never read the story. They just read the headline and maybe you know a sentence description that's there. Fisking is exactly the opposite. In Fisking, people literally went through his entire column, you know, paragraph by paragraph, uh, refuting or mocking it. And you had to actually read the whole column to get there. And also, it didn't lead to a mob calling for him to be fired or milkshaked or whatever, uh, the way Twitter mobs tend to do now. Uh, I would say the Twitter mob is very different. Uh, and it's because, in fact, the structure of the blogosphere was very different than Twitter. Uh, the blogosphere is what systems engineers call a loosely coupled system. Uh, things that happen in one part of it don't immediately ramify to and affect other parts of it. Uh, if I post a blog post uh, for it to affect other blogs, other bloggers have to actually read my post, think about it, post something of their own, uh, and they have to choose to visit my blog first. There's no common channel. Uh, when you're on something like Twitter, it's a lot more like the old Usenet, really, uh, where you have a common channel that trolls can dominate, and you also have the factor that people are really bouncing off of subject lines and headlines rather than reading and thinking about things. And the structure of Twitter, uh, I, I use Twitter as an example. All social media have this to, to greater or lesser degrees, but Twitter is sort of the most stripped down uh, and has it most plainly has this characteristic. Uh, people are responding emotionally and quickly, and that's not by accident. Uh, Twitter, and again, all social media, are, is designed to do that. The algorithms are designed to promote what they call engagement, and engagement is basically an emotional response. And as Jaron Lanier points out in a, a passage in his book that I talk about in mine, uh, the algorithms are designed to promote engagement, and the easiest emotions to amplify are the negative ones. So by design, social media tend to make you sadder and angrier and more uh, hair trigger reactive uh, as you use them. And again, I think that's not a characteristic of the blogosphere. The, the Twitter and other social media are tightly coupled systems where uh, you can easily react to something that somebody else can re react to what you've done and so on down the line. It's more like a nuclear reactor with the control rods removed. So uh, I, 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 I understand that. It, it, it's interesting. So you're really saying the good old days were 2006 uh, uh, when bloggers reigned supreme and before Twitter and Facebook really uh, had uh, uh, totally uh, uh, taken over the process of social, uh, exchanging social views. Well, it depends on what you mean by good. Uh, obviously, uh, it's been it's been very very good for Mark Zuckerberg at Al. Uh, but you know, and there are others, I mean, plenty of people get plenty of enjoyment off Twitter and Facebook. Uh, I experience Facebook very differently because it's all my friends on it. People generally behave pretty well. Uh, uh, Twitter is usually strangers yelling at each other. Um, but again, it somewhat depends on Twitter who you follow. Uh, but the overall structure of Twitter, I think, is negative, and I think that. You know, it had the effect. There, there's still plenty of blogs out there, uh, but I had the effect certainly of taking a lot of people, especially people who didn't have the time or energy to set up or maintain a blog, and they had an outlet. Now they can go tweet or they can go Facebook, uh, and that's that's very nice. Uh, the problem with Twitter is uh, you could be a person with hardly any followers on Twitter, but if you tweet the wrong thing, uh, you can have a mob coming after you anyway. And in fact, Justine Sacco, you know, the famous early Twitter mob case where she the, has Justine landed thing, uh, her tweet was, uh, she had 170 followers, but somebody picked it up and shared it. And uh, by the time her plane landed in Cape Town, uh, she'd lost her job and been made a pariah uh, all over a fairly harmless joke about white Westerners being afraid of getting AIDS when they go to Africa. Uh, that's something that you didn't get in the blogosphere. So in that sense, yes, the blogosphere is definitely superior. Uh, Mobbing is something that is a natural instinct to people, and it predates social media. People like to be part of a mob because they get catharsis, they get a sense of power without responsibility because it's diffused in the mob, uh, and humans have a natural tendency to form mobs. But what has happened with uh, social media is it's become much easier to do that. So in essence, it's been subsidized, and when you subsidize something, you get more of it.
Yeah. So I, I, I've been kind of mildly Twitter mobbed. You've been Twitter mobbed. Uh, in my experience, uh, if you wait a little, uh, um, the other side of whatever argument you're being Twitter mobbed about starts to weigh in, and then uh, uh, everybody starts fighting with each other, and they're no longer as interested in uh, mobbing you. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, uh, and that's actually the. Uh, Go ahead. That's the advice I give to large institutions in particular. When, when you've got an employee uh, being mobbed or you're being mobbed, you know, one of the things a lot of people want to do is they say, we need to get out ahead of the story. This is like 1990s PR advice. Get ahead of the story. Uh, on Twitter, and well, social media, that's usually a mistake because, in fact, most of what happens on social media doesn't actually matter in the weird world. Uh, just because people are saying bad things about your company on Twitter does not mean that they're actually going to even stop buying your products. Uh, and, and one of the problems these institutions have is by now they all have one or more in-house social media people. And those are the very last people who are going to tell their bosses, yeah, ignore social media. It doesn't really matter what happens there. And yet the truth is uh, most of these things, uh, you just wait out of two or three days or at most a week and everybody's forgotten about them. So, so I, the best thing to do is nothing, usually. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. My, my other thought, I want to get to your regulatory and uh, uh, legislative proposals, but uh, on the self-help front, if you're looking for a way to get the benefit of Twitter without the uh, uh, lunacy, uh, I recommend an uh, app called Nuzzle, uh, N-U-Z-Z-E-L, which simply sends you copies of stories that have been tweeted by two or more of the people you follow. So that uh, it, it's, it's basically saying, uh, you know, it, it will send you one if, you, if, if that's what you want. But uh, uh, it takes away some of the urgency, but it uh, allows you to find stories that uh, uh, people that you respect actually think are important. And you can fil- you set the filter so that uh, the more people have reacted to it, the more likely it is to be high on the list of uh, stories to, to read. Um, so it, it's not a perfect substitute for uh, uh, or per- perfect antidote, but it does take a lot of the uh, false urgency and emotion out of the process. Oh, well, that's really interesting. Although uh, it's nuzzle sounds more like some kind of a porn app or dating app, but uh, <laughs> but it's an interesting approach. Yeah, you know, I I actually uh, I quit Twitter, but I it, it, sort of I still have an old Twitter account that I used to look in on what's going on on Twitter sometimes. I don't tweet anymore. I basically said, why give them free content uh, and uh, get myself agitated? And I found myself much happier and more relaxed and just with an extra degree of sort of distance between me and the problems of the world. There's something about being involved in the back and forth on Twitter that makes you feel like when there's something bad happening in the world somewhere, you're involved. You own it somehow, you know, and it's just, uh, it's not true. It's yeah, not everybody's problem. waiting for your latest <laughs> pronouncement on it. Uh, right. It's uh, not your problem. Yes. So I, it's very useful. Uh, and, and I think, you know, to continue my disease metaphor, uh, people will gradually acquire habits that are the mental equivalent of sanitation uh, that will help address this sort of thing. We did not evolve in... Uh, an environment where we were being assailed by toxic ideations all the time. Uh, but uh, we'll adapt to that, I'm sure. I just hope there's not too much damage done along the way. Well, I'm afraid it's a little like the 1918 flu. It, it, it strikes the young uh, hardest, uh, uh, but uh, the ones who survive will uh, be immune for life. Well, what's actually interesting that I've observed is that if you, if you go back five or ten years to when Twitter and Facebook were new, Young people, like you know, my students, college students, high school students, were the early adapters. If you talk to the college or high school students today, and, and even to my law students, essentially, they're much less interested in it, and they are much more afraid of it because they've seen these examples of people having their lives ruined or at least damaged uh, based on some stray comment on social media. And a lot of them just concluded, you know, it's really not worth the trouble. Uh, or where they can find themselves to posting pictures of their vacations on Instagram or something like that, which is comparatively safe. Yeah, I think the, the you know the, we all know about Justine Sacco, but I'm sure that that something like Justine Sacco's case happens every year in every high school in America. 
Yes. Uh, and, and so uh, now this will permanently shape, you know, I, I like to say that we all do what worked for us in high school. Uh, oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> uh, and, and so they'll continue, I suspect, to be influenced by this their, their whole life. Uh, but let's let's talk quickly about regulation or what should society be doing about it? We spent a lot of time during the uh, um, uh, the news roundup talking about the question of when when should social plat, uh, social media platforms be required to uh, watch what their uh, users are saying and to say you can't say that about cancer cures, about vaccines, about uh, um, uh, terrorism. Um, uh, clearly, regulation is coming, maybe coming in Europe before it comes to the U.S., but it's coming here too. Uh, uh, what's your thinking about how we can help detoxify some of these platforms? Well, I'm very suspicious of a lot of the calls for regulation because, uh, as you know, it's, it's pretty well established in uh, the scholarship of administrative law that regulation tends to benefit entrenched existing companies, uh, which is why it's not surprising that Google and Facebook uh, are actually starting to be pretty okay with the idea of regulation. And I'm especially troubled by regulation where people decide what it is that's healthy for us to know. Uh, one of the big problems with search engines uh, is uh, that the algorithms aren't transparent and really probably can't be. But the truth is, you know, when I go to Google and I type in a search phrase, when Google was new, you actually had a fair idea what, what that meant and, and what being at the top of the rank meant. Now, nobody knows. And not by nobody, I mean even people at Google, uh, there was a story recently sort of as part of all, all this talk about their algorithms where they discovered that when you search, you know, search whether the Holocaust was real, the first page you went to was Stormfront. Well, on the one hand, obviously that's ridiculous. On the other hand, if Google is tweaking their algorithms all the time to fix what they think is stuff we should know, uh, how can we rely on them to get what we are looking for when we search things? And how can we not worry that Google is actually trying to shape our view of the world to suit Google's view of what we ought to know. And I will note that there have been some pretty credible charges that they did that with searches uh, during the Irish abortion referendum, for example, and during the U.S. 2016 election with regard to Hillary Clinton queries. So, you know, and, and again, you want to say, well, we just need trust, but how can we trust them to be fair when at some level uh, what's going on is sort of machine learning stuff that even they don't really understand. I, you know, that, I think that's being generous to them. I, they, it is being generous. Is, I mean, I'm a generous guy. Okay. Silicon Valley has suffered a kind of epistemic closure in the last 10 years about uh, what is acceptable politics. Uh, and really, it's not acceptable to be a standard Republican, let alone a Trump Republican uh, in Silicon Valley. That is morally abhorrent. And if there were a way to make sure that the views that uh, ordinary Republicans and certainly Trump Republicans hold could not be expressed on uh, social media, I, by and large, they'd be happy to see them go. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the willingness of people to liken their domestic mainstream political opponents to Nazis uh, is one of the most striking things about uh, you know, today's left. And you know, Google and, and Silicon Valley in general have, in general have a tremendous diversity problem. I mean, they are the least diverse place politically in America, probably, and I mean, you literally probably find a broader range of political views at the Democratic National uh, Convention uh, than you do in Google headquarters, which would actually probably look at a lot of the views you'd find at the Democratic National Convention as uh, Nazi-like themselves. Uh, it's, it's very bizarre, and it doesn't help that people who are attracted to this kind of work are smart, but are in a particular way in which... You know, they, they play, they, they game a lot. Manipulating the rules is part of the part of the deal, and maybe they are not the most empathetic people in general, uh, or the most group oriented. Uh, so I think it, it, it produces a, a bad climate, uh, and I think it has. And I think you know, uh, reason the Libertarian magazine I, I thought was very unfair. Ted Cruz was quizzing Google executives about whether any of them had voted for Trump, and the headline at Reason said something like. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz wants to punish Google for not voting for Trump. But really his point was, you know, the country is a very diverse place. We have people with a lot of views in the country, and we don't have people with a lot of views at Google, and you don't seem to be 
concerned with using your power to advance your own views at the expense of others. So why can't we have more transparency about the algorithmic decisions, which I agree with you, sometimes it's hard to understand why they have achieved the results they have achieved, but uh, um, you know, if, if there were an allegation that these uh, algorithms were racially biased, we'd sit down and say, well, let's do a rough cut about whether it's produced the uh, numbers that we would expect. And if it hasn't, there's something wrong with the algorithm. We want to dig into it. Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, from that direction, you can do that. And it, I, I feel confident if you do that test on Google uh, for Republicans instead of for race, you'll, you'll find results that suggest there's something wrong. Uh, but it's not easy for users to tell uh, unless you do a systematic survey. And, uh, you know, even for people, I mean, managers in Google uh, can really only judge by the results, too. That, that was sort of my point. I mean, it's, it's not like they're trying to send traffic to Stormfront, but they just you know, machine learning stuff is literally opaque to human understanding. <laughs> you just you can't know how it works. Uh, now, maybe that maybe we should limit the deployment of those kind of techniques and require more transparency. I'm skeptical of that, but but uh, people will talk about it. My own solution is honestly more focused on diversity too. Uh, in the book, I go through a whole lot of proposals people have, uh, everything from uh, eliminating Section 230 immunity under the Communications Decency Act for social media platforms uh, so that they're now liable for defamation or intellectual property infringement or whatever in the stuff their users post, which would basically kill them. Uh, and, but a lot of people actually support that. Uh, I talk about, you know, proposals to regulate content more, which I think would violate the First Amendment uh, and, and be terrible anyway. I talk about proposals to uh, ban anonymity online, uh, which is actually the uh, plot device of a very famous old internet story by Werner Vinci called True Names, and uh, that didn't work out well. Uh, and, and a number of other stuff. And, and I conclude that the single best thing we can do right now is probably actually antitrust. That antitrust means that these big monocultures get broken up and the smaller cultures, which don't have as much room for waves of hysteria and misinformation, there's more competition so that people can sort of compare the results better. Uh, and uh, if we police collusion, and there's already reason to think there's a significant amount of collusion among the big tech companies to keep out competitors. If we police collusion, that would also help a lot. And the great part of it is none of it requires policing the content of anybody's speech, whether it's the company's speech or their users. So I... I, I, I... I understand the theory uh, uh, of, uh, uh, of doing this, but I am struck by the fact that uh, YouTube, which is by far the predominant uh, uh, video sharing uh, uh, site, uh, took down uh, James O'Keefe uh, uh, expose on Google's own search uh, censorship. Uh, it was something on uh, Hillary Clinton's emails you could not get. Uh, even if you put Hillary Clinton's EM, you still couldn't get it to auto-complete to email, although you could certainly do that with John Podesta's or other people's emails. It was clear that that had been taken. You know, auto-complete had just been disabled for that particular uh, topic, uh, which was obviously a sore point uh, in the election. Uh, his takedown of that was taken down itself by um, uh, yes. YouTube uh, on grounds of privacy and then by Vimeo, which is like the distant second competitor for YouTube uh, uh, on grounds that it was defamatory. The only uh, site you could pick it up on other than uh, O'Keefe's own site was BitChute, which itself has been cut off by PayPal for uh, having the wrong sort of content. Uh, uh, yes. It's really tough to, to make competition work in that climate. Well, it's not tough to make competition work if we actually apply the antitrust laws against collusion, because in fact, you just described one of the best examples of, of big tech collusion that we've seen. And uh, that, you know, that's the sort of thing that needs to be a matter for concern for general counsels at these companies who are going to say, if we do this, sure, we're doing a political favor for somebody. Sure, we're making Google look better, but we run a risk of an antitrust investigation, and we can't afford that. And right now, nobody's worried about antitrust law much. 
Uh, big companies should probably start, but they're not yet, and they won't until some examples are made. Well, uh, it's, it's, I, it's, it's, a, it's it's the, the University of Chicago is uh, exercising sway over at least the Republican approach, uh, and the Democratic approach to uh, uh, using antitrust law is not necessarily going to be one that will uh, rescue your no. vers- diversity of well, viewpoint. It, it is interesting, though. I mean, I, I was at a conference on free speech and social media at Stanford uh, about a month ago, and what struck me was I thought I was going to have to really defend my argument against a lot of opposition. And in fact, I found that people, and they had a very broad spectrum from left to right. It was a very diverse group. Uh, almost everybody was basically on board. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, it's, that's such an unusual experience for me to have a lot of people agree with me that it made me you know, on the plane going, huh, I was like, if I miss something. <laughs> but um, it really, uh, I mean, I do think that we, uh, the big tech companies, have got themselves in a situation in which they've really sort of lost most of their allies. They're very unpopular on the left and on the right. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, they're very vulnerable. And, uh, yeah, it's a little like, it's a little like a ref uh, in a championship game who has called a very unpopular, but maybe correct foul on one team and is desperately calling fouls on the other uh, of increasingly dubiousness uh, uh, to to counteract it, and uh, is, is is as a respect uh, as as a result res- disrespected by all. I want to I I don't, I don't want to end this without getting advice from you on longevity. You're a, an enthusiast for longevity and health s- supplements, and if I remember right, uh, weightlifting. Uh, uh, what's your recommendation for people who are slowly aging behind their computers as they blog or tweet uh, uh, their oh. lives away. Oh, God, get up from your computer as much as you can. And, you know, I've been, I, I had, I got my first computer when I was in law school. I was 23 years old, and I immediately developed back problems. So I have a long history of this. Uh, my lesson is try and get the perfect seating position at your computer uh, is nice, but the best thing you can do is actually uh, use a lot of different positions. And I actually, I, I work at a desktop, I work at a laptop in multiple different chairs. I try to move around a lot. So I'm just not doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, weightlifting really helped me with all my sort of back, shoulder, neck, knee, hip pain. And I, I feel much better. And I, you buy Mark Ripito's starting strength book and get started and, uh, uh, you'll feel a lot better in a year, I promise. Uh, my own diet, I do a low carb diet, but it's not, really Atkins or keto level low carbs. I try to keep my carbs between 50 and 100 and uh, closer to 100 mostly now. And, uh, you know, try to eat healthy food and um, not too much highly processed food. And uh, other than that, you know, supplements, Coenzyme Q10 is the one that makes me feel the best. Uh, And everybody I've talked to the taking it from my daughter to my brother, to my mother, to my wife, all is skeptical on this. I really do feel better. Uh, so, so that's my single recommendation there. I, there are a lot of people in the life extension community who are taking things like metformin or rapamycin, and I've looked at those, but I, I'm, I'm, skeptical. I'm remaining skeptical. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical, too. I've, I, I want I, to believe, but I think I'll wait a while. Yeah, I have fallen prey to uh, green tea extract, uh, and oh. uh, um, I think I've noticed a reduction of maybe 10 points in uh, blood pressure uh, since I started doing that. So uh, I, uh, there, there's, there's at least a possibility that that's uh, uh, valuable. Uh, how do you decide uh, uh, which supplements you are going to pursue and which ones you aren't? Do you actually just I take mean, them and see? I, well, I research it and I sort of see what looks like a good case for it. And there are a number of sort of health bloggers. And I have, you know, like I say, a lot of sort of Silicon Valley life extension friends. And I listen to what they're saying. And then I try it. And if I feel better, I keep it. And, you know, some stuff you can't really tell. I mean, I take... Uh, uh, resveratrol, which is supposed to slow the rate at which your cells age, but I mean, you can't really measure that. Uh, so, so sometimes you just have to sort of take it on faith and hope it helps and try to take stuff that at least isn't likely to harm you. Uh, on the green tea extract, I will tell you, you have to be careful. There are some medications that can interact with, so you need to be aware of that. Uh, but, you know, it's all kind of a guess. I would like them to develop some better anti-aging drugs, but basically the goal is to try to keep yourself alive and healthy until they do. Yes. <laughs> and of the, stuff, of the so, stuff you do, exercise and, 
and not having a crappy diet uh, outweigh the benefit of sort of everything else put together, you know, and then not smoking, of course. I sort of wish I smoked because everybody says the best thing you can do for your health is to quit smoking. And I mean, I can't do that. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, well, so I, we're, we're, we're basically staggering forward, hoping that there's an escalator at the end of the run. Uh, uh, Glenn, this was, this was terrific. Uh, and uh, at some point, we'll, uh, we'll compare uh, deadlifts. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, but I won't ask you on the, on the air. Uh, thanks to Glenn Reynolds, uh, also to Maury Shank and Matthew Hyman and Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been episode 271 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Uh, um, if you've got an interview guest to suggest, uh, please uh, send that uh, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If they come on the show, we will send you, as I'm sending to Glenn, uh, a um, uh, highly coveted uh, Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, and uh, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, I, uh, I've been following Glenn's advice for the last uh, two weeks, and I haven't tweeted out the possible topics, but uh, I will hope to get some more topics uh, uh, in my uh, Twitter feed uh, shortly. Uh, and uh, we've, coming up, we've got uh, Harvey Rishikoff to talk about supply chain security. We've got Paul Shar and Greg Allen to talk about China and AI. Uh, I want to thank Christy Jorge, the producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, Michael Beaver, our assistant and editor. I'm Stuart Baker, host and chief provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Mm -hmm.